0: This morning we come to the uh, end of the seven seals in the book of Revelation. And it's a good time because we're going to take a three-week break from Revelation after today. Um, Next time to have a break. But let me just orient us to where we are in this before we hit this final of the seven seals today. You remember that in Revelation 4 and 5, John had a vision of God on his throne. And in chapter 5, it says that in his hand, God in his hand had a scroll that was written on front and back. And on the scroll were seven seals locking it shut. And there was no one to open the scroll. But then the Lion of Judah was introduced. And John turned to look at him and behold, it was a lamb and the lamb was the only one who could open the scrolls the seal seals because of what he had accomplished and done and so in revelation 6 it begins that process of him opening the seven seals the uh, first four seals spelled terrible trouble for those on earth even believers but god's people in the next chapter, were sealed to protect them from the harmful results of these uh, troubles. And those in heaven already were reassured that their blood would eventually be avenged and then were given a, a vision of that day coming, that day of terror. So this morning we come to the seventh seal. Now, being the final seal, our expectations are high as we come to this uh, this part of Scripture. But, as often happens in the Bible, the Lord throws us a curveball. Because all we're told in chapter 8, verse 1, about the seventh seal is this. When the Lamb opened the seventh seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That is the seventh seal, or at least so it seems. So what does this mean? May we expect something climactic, but it seems about as anticlimactic as it's possible to be. It's so anticlimactic that it has left many Bible students searching desperately for some content to add to it to be the filling of the seventh seal. Sometimes too desperate. One thing is for sure. This is not supposed to be blatantly obvious to us. It's supposed to feel strange. It's supposed to make us think. It's supposed to puzzle us. It's not supposed to be easy, but strange. Remember that in Bible prophecy, like the book of Revelation, things are rarely plain and obvious. Think about the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. You know, we love these prophecies and we look back and feel like they fit so perfectly to the coming of the Lord. But that's not the way that they were before the Lord arrived. It wasn't clear. There's so many parts of them that were very mysterious and parts that seemed to contradict each other. Once he came, ah, then it all made sense. But that's the nature of prophecy in the Bible. The book of Revelation is sort of like a patchwork or a puzzle with some of the pieces missing. We're given glimpses of things, but God doesn't spell it out all plainly to us. If we approach the book expecting to be able to figure it all out, we'll be disappointed. No matter how smart we are, we are left scratching our heads. In a passage like this, no matter how many times you read it over, there just doesn't seem to be enough to know what's going on. So how should we approach it? Well, first of all, with humility. Obviously, we're going to need help to understand this. Second of all, or implicit in that, is that we should not rely on our imagination, even though imagination is a perfectly God-given gift and appropriate for use in Bible study, we've got to be careful because when our imagination has no fetters, no controls, then the human imagination can go in very wrong directions. The next thing is that we need to make sure to stay within the boundaries of what God says elsewhere in his word. You know, I think there's a good rule of thumb as we approach the Bible, that pretty much every book in the Bible, at least 90% of what it says is said elsewhere in other books of the Bible. And so, when you're, when you're and a really difficult passage that, that is very strange. You probably shouldn't conclude that it says something that is foreign to everything else said in the Bible. And I think that that relates here as well. So, the four things that we can keep in mind are the context of the verse in the book of Revelation the details of the actual verse, things that are embedded in the verse that we need to take note of, other parts of the Bible which might shed light on the things in this verse, and finally, different ways Christian people down through the ages have suggested to interpret this passage. And of course, there's been many suggestions of how this should be interpreted. Some say the seventh seal has no content at all. It's empty. Some suggest that the seventh seal, like the Sabbath day, is God's rest. Like he labored for six days and then rested for seven. So the six days are activity and the seventh day is rest. The seventh seal. Some have wondered whether perhaps the silence is not an end in itself, but rather a dramatic pause in anticipation of what is to come next. And many who've concluded this have said, suggested that maybe the seven trumpets that follow, or even the seven trumpets and then the seven bowls which follow after that, are all a part of the seventh seal. But the proposal that I find most compelling is that this half hour of silence is the first moment of the last chapter of the story. Hear that. The first moment of the last chapter of the story. A story which culminates at the end of Revelation in 21 and 22. A brief It is a brief snapshot of the dramatic, of one dramatic moment on the last day when Christ gloriously appears and all stand in awe of him. That that's what this moment of silence is. Now, there are plenty more opportunities in the rest of the book For God to give further details and descriptions of the coming of Jesus and the last day. But at this time, this suggestion is, to get things started, John has given us just one initial snapshot. Well, this introduces the concept of cycles, which some of you are aware of, but I, wanted, I haven't mentioned yet in this series, I don't think. Many Revelation scholars believe that Revelation contains a series of cycles. In other words, this book doesn't proceed down a long timeline from beginning to end and tell us what's going to happen that way but it tells us the same story over and over again in several different cycles and each one expands upon what the one before it has said and expands our understanding and our the the amount of information we're given as to what is going on and in 8.1, we, are coming, we come to the end of the first cycle, which are these seven seals. Now the end of the first cycle is this half hour of silence in heaven. Now, let me explain why I think this is the best answer to the dilemma that we face when we come to the half hour of silence in heaven in Revelation 8.1. First of all, the context in Revelation. When the Lamb removes the seventh seal, it indicates that all the seals have been removed. We can tell it's talking about something to do with the end of history because it's the last seal. Even though time-wise the seven seals are not seven consecutive steps one following another, their order does have a meaning. This is the final seal and we expect something to be final about it. The second thing, looking at the details embedded in the verse, it doesn't say the lamb opened the seventh seal, period. It says the lamb opened the seventh seal and there was heaven about a half hour of silence. Sometimes the Bible says a lot by saying a little. Maybe the silence is the point. Silence isn't nothing, as anyone with little children in their house knows. Silence is something. Silence can be very significant. But we must note that whatever this silence is, it is not an eternal reality. It is not even a long-term reality. This silence lasts a half hour. But I think the main key of this verse is the rest of Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. The Bible in a few places talks about the culmination of history, but I don't know of anywhere except here where it talks about the final day in turn. However, the Bible does talk quite a bit about silence before God in the context of times when he shows himself, at times when he appears, at times when he brings judgment. For instance, Zephaniah one seven: Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Zechariah two thirteen: Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. He's. He's coming, he's, he's gotten up, he's coming up to, to us. Habakkuk 2:20: "The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Israel and Babylon both are described as being silent, When God's judgment falls upon them. In Lamentations 2.10, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. This is when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. They sit in silence on the ground. Isaiah 47.5 talks about the Babylonians. They sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Chaldean, Babylonian of the synonyms. The closest parallel that we have in Hebrew, it seems to me, uh, to this passage in Revelation eight one, is, or maybe, Daniel 4.19. You might remember this story. Daniel uh, is given... The interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision, and it's so troubling to him hearing what this means that it says that he that uh, he sat for about an hour stunned we also. Hear, have a similar picture of silence later in the book of Revelation in chapter 18 in when God is destroying Babylon and, and making it fall and it said the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players sorry Amy flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. So this is a sign of God's judgment that the silence has descended upon the great city. And even in the book of Romans, in 319, it says, Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. So God speaks so that man will be silenced. And even to believers, in Deuteronomy 27.9, Moses says to all of God's people, he says, Keep silence and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord. So this pronouncement that has so much power and profundity to it that the only right response is just to be quiet and listen. Have you ever walked into a meeting or into a group that's talking and it's sort of awkwardly silent, but everyone is totally engaged The intensity of the moment is palpable, but you have no idea what's going on. Someone just said something offensive or something happened. Everybody's just stunned and you have no idea. This verse, verse 1, doesn't tell us why there's silence for a half hour. It's like we're seeing someone's reaction without seeing what they're reacting to. And we've seen already how the Bible uses that mechanism sometimes to show us something. It's just to show the way people reacted. We saw this in the, some of the visions earlier in Revelation, where the, the thing that they're seeing isn't described. It's their reaction to what they're seeing that's described. Imagine traveling by time machine and arriving at the very moment... In the Garden of Eden, when God found Adam and Eve who had clothed themselves in fig leaves, hiding their nakedness, having just sinned, that moment where they saw him and were stunned, I'm sure, in silence. Or look at the moment... Think about the moment when Jesus locked eyes with Peter in the courtyard right after Peter had denied Jesus three times, fulfilling what Jesus said would happen, even though Peter promised it wouldn't happen. And we're told in Luke twenty-two sixty-one 61, that as soon as he denied him the third time, he looked up and he locked eyes with Jesus who was passing through the courtyard. And then it says Peter went out and wept bitterly. But that moment right there, when they locked eyes together, I think might give us a picture of what this half hour of silence was. There's also a story in the Chronicles of Narnia that I think gives us a taste of this. It's in the book Prince Caspian. Aslan hadn't hadn't shown himself in, in Narnia for many, many years. But now he had arrived, and not many people knew this, only a few. And after he arrived, he roared. And you know, if you know Narnie books at all, that, that when Aslan roared, it was a big deal. And Aslan, of course, if you're completely unfamiliar with these books, and I don't, uh, I don't, I don't want to uh, make you feel guilty for not... Uh, Being familiar with these books, I would like to make you feel privileged because you still have the wonder of this experience ahead of you in your life to uh, become familiar with these books. But anyway, so Aslan is a Christ figure, and when he shows up, it says this, Aslan, who seemed larger than before, lifted his head, shook his mane, and roared the sound deep and throbbing at first like an organ beginning on a low note, rose and became louder, and then far louder again, till the earth and air were shaking with it. It rose up from that hill and floated across all Narnia. Down in Myras' camp, men woke and stared palely into one another's faces. Down below that, in the great river, the heads and shoulders of the nymphs, rose from the water. Beyond it, in every field and wood, the alert ears of rabbits rose from their holes. The sleepy heads of birds came out from under wings. The trees stirred. In towns and villages, mothers pressed babies close to their breasts, staring with wild eyes. Dogs whimpered, and men leaped up, groping for lights. Far away on the northern frontier, the mountain giants peered from the dark gateways of their castles. You get this idea that they've heard something. It reminds me of the sounding of the trumpet that the scriptures talk about that will happen on that day. And it's like everyone is stunned and everyone has some sense that of what this means. And, and, the, and they have no Response. The half hour of silence, according to this interpretation, that we find in Revelation eight one is like the ultimate be still and know that I am God moment. Psalm forty six ten. Now there are days of awe which occur in everyone's life. I, uh, you know, I love to listen to music, and I have a long playlist, and one of the songs that I love is an old folk song called Mighty Day. And in, in it, there the line goes, Wasn't that a mighty day? And the first few times I listen to it, I'm like, What is this talking about? And so I listened more, and I went and I did some research, and turns out it's a song written about a hurricane that hit Galveston, Texas, in the year 1900. It is the greatest, in terms of loss of human life, the greatest natural disaster ever to occur on, human, on American soil. And... Um, at least two songs were written about it, but it, it is a song that reflects awe of just the v- v- power of, and display of this storm that hit. And, you know, the people weren't prepared. I'm actually reading a book now about this hurricane. There's actually a book written about it even over hundred years later. And, um, you know, no one was thinking that this was a threat the head engineer assured everyone it's impossible for hurricanes to do damage in Galveston, Texas, the way things are f- formed on the coast, you know. So they were all just going about their business, and then this thing hit and was devastating. And, um, and you know, they're, they're always, as a society, probably the day that is most like this for most of us was 9-11, September 11th in uh, 2001, you know, a day that that we'll never forget, the day that we were all stunned. And, uh, you know, just last month at 4.17 in the morning, people near the region of uh, Tarsus where Paul grew up and near the region of Antioch where the first Gentile church was planted were woken up by a terrible earthquake and an earthquake which in the the death toll I looked it up is getting very close to 60,000 people from that earthquake. Now, you know, we've moved on because it's not even in the news anymore. We're past, we have other things that we're paying attention to now as a society. I can tell you those people will never forget that day. And they're still living stunned lives because of what happened on that day in Turkey and in Syria. And there are many days like this through history. Days when thousands, even millions of people have been killed. Plagues and wars. You read about them in the history books. And then in our personal lives, smaller things, but still things that stopped us in our tracks. Heart attacks. Car accidents, house fires, mass killings. There are many moments of awe, many moments of fear, moments of stunned silence in life. You know, I think of little kids when they are doing something wrong and all of a sudden mom or dad shows up. And they like there for a moment. It's like I'm dead. <laughs> well, most of these moments are just that. They're moments. Even when a million people die, they are only a small glimpse of the moment that is described in Revelation 8.1. The moment when Christ appears for the second time so if this is the first glimpse of the last appearance of Christ then we're given this so that we can import this picture into our daily lives so that we can learn to work out our salvation with fear and trembling There is a day coming, a terrible day. No one will be laughing. And when I say terrible, I mean a day of terror, which is what terrible means. No one will be laughing. No one will roll their eyes. No one will giggle or make jokes or mock. There will be no snide remarks. There'll be no one texting their friends. Not because someone has ordered everyone to be quiet. But simply because he has appeared and for a half hour, no one is able to verbalize a response. It will be such a stunning moment for every human being. That it will silence every time of us love to talk. We will not be talking for that half hour when he appears. Some have a five minute attention span. They will not struggle to keep their attention for those 30 minutes of Silence everyone's attention will be so arrested that no one has anything to say what a day that will be for god has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed acts 17:31 the lord will empty the earth and make it desolate He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. As with the people, so it will be with the priest. As with the slave, so it will be with the master. As with the maid, so also the mistress. As with the buyer, so also the seller. As with the lender, so also the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly emptied. And utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word, Isaiah 24. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth The great day of the Lord is near, near and happening fast. Zephaniah 1, 2 to 3. The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 2 Peter 3, 7-10. But what about God's people? Well, Daniel 12 says, There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. In other words, in the history of mankind, this will surpass every bad thing that's happened from the time there was first a nation among men till the time that it happens. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like bright the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12 If you are being persecuted, you don't need to fret for God will give relief to you when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 And then a few verses later in verse 10 it talks about the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at heaven. Marvel at among all those who have believed, and this includes you. That's from Second Thessalonians 1:10. For some, of course, that day will come as a day of terror. It will be their worst nightmare coming true. But for that half hour, they will not be fleeing. They will not be calling to the rock mountains to fall on them. They will be in stunned silence. But why would believers be in stunned silence? Well, trust me, we'll have plenty to be stunned about on that day as well. For some, it will be a day of deliverance. Living in terrible pain every day. Their sighs and gasps soon to turn into shouts of glee, but not yet. For this half hour, their moans and their shrieks are silenced by something bigger than their pain and bigger than their healing. For some, it will be a day of their dreams coming true. It will be the fulfilling of everything they've ever hoped for. But their mourning won't turn to dancing just yet. They too are in stunned silence as the new reality dawns on them. They are stunned not because it's finally happening. They're stunned because what's happening is so much bigger and better than anything they ever imagined. And just because he's so awesome. One day, your mouth and my mouth and all of our mouths will be shut. Just as Job's mouth was shut when he put his hand over his mouth. When God challenged him out of the whirlwind. In Job 40 verse 4, I am of small account, he said. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. You see, at that time, Job thought that his pain was the big thing. He thought that the way he'd been treated was the big thing. He didn't realize that there was something much bigger than either his pain or his perceived injustice. And this is our problem too. We don't believe in the midst of the moment by moment of our lives that there is something much bigger than all of this that we're dealing with. And when it finally appears, we will put our hands over our mouths. And knowing that one day he will appear and all will be silent ought to change the way that we live today. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that is the earth and the heavenly bodies, what sort of people ought you to be in living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see, the whole New Testament is basically telling us how we ought to be living in the light of the reality of his imminent appearing. But no one, you can't live the way... Jesus calls you to live. You can't live the way the New Testament instructs you to live if you don't live it in the awareness of the great day that is coming, of his appearing. When we remember that day, we stop fretting, we stop complaining, we stop judging God, We stop our chatter and we start listening to him. We start waiting in hope of his appearing. And now, as we come to this point in the service and anticipate the Lord's Supper... Let us turn our minds back to the thing that made the Lamb so worthy to be worshipped. He was the one who came and gave his life upon the cross for the redemption of his people. This enables us to anticipate his return with joy and with eagerness instead of with Dread and terror. He has loved us. He has called us his own. He has called us to come to him. And in the supper he's called us to partake of him. To feed on him. To gain our strength from him. To draw as near to him as food that we eat and bring it into our bodies. But before we go to the table, let us stand and sing together When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.